Okay, so thank you, Johnny, for bringing me back here. Hope you bring me back more often. Uh, it's so nice to be here around friends in a friendly environment. Thank you, Bruce and Jessica, for opening up their building to us. It's Out a delight. Out of respect for him, it won't be let us all turn our phones off to hear him. Oh, wise, wow. Wise yes. words of wisdom. I'm not, See, I'm not I am be here by 15 guys, minutes and I have Guys, everybody look. Power, power off. <laughs> What's <laughs> funny is that just turn my phone every off. Time, every time, I want to hear what Rabbi Every time I hear a speaker say that, I'm, <laughs> I'm envious. That, you know, please turn off all your phones. I, I can never do it, you know. Compunctions. But how are you gonna record it, Johnny? You gotta record it. You gotta record it. What do you think he's doing with his iPad? Well, no, iPad's not recording. The phone's recording. Well, there you go. Yeah. And the phone's flipped over. My bigger problem is how am I gonna video us listening to you? Open your phone, but don't look at it. No, no, no. I want to hear what I want to hear. Okay. So, what I am gonna talk about today is what we've been talking about in the I don't know, five, five, four or five weeks. So if you analyze, you analyze the Holy Book, the Bible, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, the Torah, you'll notice that it's broken down into five separate books. We all know them. Um, Genesis, and now we're up to Exodus. And there's a remarkable departure uh, from the kind of narrative and dialogue and story that we have in the first book to the second book. First book, we talk about Abraham, and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Joseph's brothers, we kind of learn about an idea on one hand and a family on the other hand. The idea, obviously, is that of, of God. Abraham emerges in a pagan world and he presents a brand new idea that basically changes the course of human history. You know, Abraham, the great innovator, is the one who set the world on the path that we are today. Abraham comes 3,800 years ago and the entire world's pagan. And the system of morality is very, very different than what we basically accept as being basic societal norms accepted across every culture. Abraham is the one who comes up in a face of a, 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 or a with tremendous headwinds uh, when everyone is telling him you're a lunatic and he teaches the world that there's this one invisible God who has power over everything, who is endowing man with a, with a mission and responsibility to do right and right and wrong. And the, the decisions that we have, that we make, have an impact for eternity. That's the idea that Abraham sets in motion. And today, if you look back in retrospect, you see basically that the entire world adopted some variant of, of this worldview that Abraham began. Abraham is promised in Genesis uh, that his children are going to be the people of God, the nation of God, the nation that's going to be entrusted with the vital mission of bringing morality to the world, the vital mission of being God's ambassadors uh, to the world, uh, of, of being the, the moral guardians of, of humanity. That's us, we're Jews. <laughs> God has promised that, but remember, so you read Genesis, you don't, you don't meet a people, it's a family. It's a family, it's an idea, and it's a promise. Abraham is also told as a prerequisite for this nation that he's going to be the father of, he's also told that you should know that your kids are going to be foreigners in a foreign land. So that's the first question that we're probably going to, we, we have to ask ourselves when we look at the Exodus. Uh, it seems very clear that enslavement is a prerequisite for the Jewish nation. Us, to be here as, a, as Jews, Right? And to have this mission that we've been telling the whole world about, the mission of morality, the mission of God, right? our uh, uh, collective mission that we still do today, whether we like it or not. Right? Even Jews that are distant from Judaism are fulfilling the Jewish mission, what we call Tukun Olam, making the world a better pl place. Right? That had to happen only after we were subjugated to enslavement. Why? Why can we just have Abraham, okay, you're a great guy, you're teaching the world about God, your kids are going to be the nation, booyah, make the kids the nation. Why does it have to be that the kids are going to descend to Egypt, they're going to be enslaved, they're going to be tormented, they're going to be persecuted, they're going to be marginalized, uh, and then they'll emerge, and then they'll have Mount Sinai and split in the sea and everything, and Moses and the wandering in the desert going back to Israel, Jewish people. Why, why does it have to be like that? And it's clear from the Torah that that's the only way it works. Question number one. Question number two, we open up the book of Exodus. And what do you see? 
very rapid descent from a, uh, a privileged family in Egypt, right? The family of Joseph. Joseph was royalty in Egypt. Very rapidly, they descend into being slaves. Slaves that are, that, that are, that are, that are uh, doing backbreaking work. Slaves that if you miss your quota of bricks, your baby replaces the brick in, 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 in the building. Just unimaginable uh, suffering that the Jewish people uh, uh, suffered. We go a little further, we read about Moses. Moses, God tells Moses, burning bush, the whole story, don't take the Jews out. Uh, God, and Moses comes, comes to Pharaoh, the whole negotiation. Ten plagues, and a theme that we go to again and again is that God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh, I hardened his heart. Remember that, those words? Pharaoh, his capacity for free will, which is the basic underlying quality of a human, is the ability to choose one way or the other, that was suspended. Right? You look at, at, at this week's Parsha. The Jewish people already left. The Jewish people are out. God tells Moses, you should know that I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart and compel him to chase after you. So this idea of Pharaoh losing his free will is a tremendous philosophical problem. Right? Jewish philosophy mandates that people do things based on their own decisions. Thus, you can only reward or punish someone based upon the fact, the premise, that they had the choice to do it or not. That makes a lot of sense, you know? If the kid doesn't have a choice whether or not he does X, Y, or Z, well, then it doesn't make sense to punish him or reward them. No consequences should exist without choice. Is that right? Makes sense? What do you say, Abraham? Makes sense. Makes sense, right? Suddenly we see Pharaoh, Pharaoh's choice is suspended. Why is Pharaoh's choice suspended? Why would God, suddenly in the middle of this whole Exodus story, tell Pharaoh, you are not going to let the Jews go? And he gives them a plague, and the hail comes, and Pharaoh says, I can't want to let them go, I want to let them go. The plague stops. Pharaoh says, ah, I'm not going to do it. Why is he not going to do it? Why don't the people go? His, uh, his free will was suspended. Why would God change the, 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 the framework of the world that he built, and suddenly, for whatever reason, tell Pharaoh, okay, you no longer have the ability to choose. I'm gonna compel you to force the Jews uh, to stay here uh, and to have the great miracles of the plagues uh, and the ensuing, uh, the, the, and the ensuing uh, uh, chase that, that, that Pharaoh uh, undergoes to, to, uh, to, uh, uh, to destroy the people. The other question, guys? What do you guys say? I feel like, I feel like these questions are not compelling yet. Anybody? How do you want to hear the answer? Give me the answer. <laughs> no, I just I don't know the answer, so I don't want to say it. Let's ask the question this way, okay? Let's look at the story from the... Everyone, everyone's familiar with the story, right? Everyone? Is anyone not familiar with the story? Good. Everyone's familiar with the story. You have ten plagues. The last plague is the death of the firstborn. The Jews leave Egypt, and then Pharaoh comes to chase them. After the fifth plague, Pharaoh was committed to, to letting the Jewish people go. He would have let them go. God forced him, compelled him to change his mind, to keep the Jews enslaved in order to enable the last five plagues to happen. Let me ask you a question. Oh, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Some, someone thinks this is a compelling question. It's a good question. The plagues are there to, let, to force the Jewish people to go. They want to let the ones, the Pharaoh wants to let the people go. Mazaltov, let's let him go and we can we, we, we leave. Why would we lengthen this whole process to have five more plagues when Pharaoh already is readily agreeing, readily agreeable to let Jewish people go? To give the Jews more time to gather their things? Oh, okay, maybe. Because, because That's a good answer. Even, even after Get your affairs in order. <laughs> even, even after all the plagues, um, there was still a part of the Jewish people that wanted to stay. So, and that's after all of the plagues. Imagine if they, so therefore, if so we'll they only had half of their portion, then a lot more people would have stayed. Why? Because I'm telling you. So I, I understand what you're saying, but why? You, why? So you're saying because, the plagues? Slaves. Okay, but in their brains. Oh, they, so they, they, they would, they would have much rather, you know, 
with what uh, they know. know. Right, exactly. And what know that they, you know, they that they were in safe they hands. They, it's it's like you know when you have like lack, lack of faith I mean, when you have someone who's like in charge of your paycheck right gonna go off onto your own exactly so if you that's still exactly think exactly. if you still think that Pharaoh and the Egyptians have their affairs in order then you'll say eh, I'll, I'll take this instead of going on the dangerous journey of with Moses into the unknown right. okay I like that so you're saying really it was about the Jewish people not about Pharaoh right. okay let me introduce you another verse here this says it multiple times in the story Multiple times in the story it says, God tells Moses, I am going to bring Pharaoh to his knees. I'm going to humble him and the, and the entire Egyptian people so that the Egyptians know that I am God. Now we're throwing in a third element here. We're saying it's not just important that the Jews should know. We want the Egyptians to know. Who cares about the Egyptians? The Egyptians are being vanquished. The Egyptians are being destroyed, obliterated, exterminated, gotten rid of. Why do we need a? Why is it important that the Egyptians know that 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 that, that, uh, that the Almighty is God? I think maybe um, we'll pass on from you know all these world history. They they want all. That the Egyptians are right. Should record it. Yes. Okay, so that's actually a problem because we don't have that many recorded um, testimonies of the Egyptians from, means extant, existing like archaeologists. We have some stuff like the Ipawar Papyrus that says, oh, there's blood everywhere and that's dated to the time. Uh, but we don't have a whole lot. And in fact, we see a pattern in archaeology throughout history is that we don't have a lot of people admitting defeat. We don't have exactly, you know, it wasn't exactly uh, the popular notion of people saying, oh, we just got destroyed. Why don't we write all about it and detail our embarrassing defeat so future generations could, could verify that this is indeed true. You know, even, even, spread the word around for all the living you know, people in the world. You know, this, you know, okay, maybe. But remember, this, this idea that we have today of trying to record history accurately, Remember, the first historian is Herodotus 2,500 years ago. So that's 800 years after the Exodus. The first time that we see in history someone with a mission of trying to organize and write and preserve the stories that happen for, for future generations. We don't have that, really. We have lots of... Uh, we have lots of uh, remains that uh, detail great victories and stuff like that, but not many that, that talk about defeat. Like for example, in the British Museum in England, you find um, from the conquest of Sancheirov, uh, we all know, everyone heard the term the Ten Lost Tribes? Anyone heard that? Ten Lost Tribes, so the Jewish people, they, um, after the death of Solomon, they split basically into two nations. There was the Northern Kingdom of Israel, Southern Kingdom of Judah. The Northern Kingdom was comprised of 10 tribes, 10 of the 12. Uh, Sancheirev, the Assyrians, they came and they destroyed the ten, the ten tribes. They didn't destroy them, they actually relocated them. And in their place, they put the Samaritans. So all these names that we know, like the Samaritans, they came to Israel when the ten tribes that are now lost were sent out. So Sancheirev wrote writes about that. He also made a siege around Jerusalem. So we have, in the British Museum today, if you go to England, you can see it, the recorded... Uh, I, I don't know in what form, probably in clay or whatever, cuneiform, uh, of Sancheirev. I am Sancheirev and I have vanquished the northern kingdom of Israel. And I, whatever, I don't know the exact details, you can Google it. And I am now uh, besieging Jerusalem because he came south. After he went north, he came south. What actually happened in history was that he didn't capture Jerusalem. Uh, we know that because he opened up the Jewish Bible, tells the whole story. He captured the northern kingdom of Israel and he, he failed on the doorstep of Jerusalem. So we don't have any right. So, so he, so, but he doesn't seem to take that great care and detail in letting us know, you know, 2,800 years later, oh, by the way, I failed miserably at capturing Jerusalem. He talks about his plans and his ambitions and his siege of Jerusalem, but not his ultimate conquest of Jerusalem. And that he does not go out in great detail to uh, let us know about his defeat. Either way, so we cannot argue that the reason, well, maybe we can. I, I think it's still open that the reason why the Egyptians had to know that God is God was uh, for them to record it. Because they didn't record it, and that wasn't the way things were done. So that's, that, that, these questions are, are, are all, uh, are all uh, good questions to kind of open up this discussion of what is really the purpose of the story. Like, looking back, 
Torah, the word Torah, we have a few Israelis here. What does the word Torah mean? Hora'ah. What does that mean? In teaching or instruction. Uh, that's, that's what it means. Because it's a book of instructions. The stories and narratives and dialogues of the Torah, oh. that is also instructive. You know, the Torah could have told us a lot of details about Moses from the age of 20 to the age of 80. You know? Obviously, the story of Moses, I'm sure, was compelling. Must, must he was a great guy, Moses, you know? How come the Torah tells us nothing about what happened to Moses from the age of 20 to the age of 80? Or why the Torah tells us nothing about Abraham from the age of zero to the age of 75? It's not instructive. The Torah deemed certain parts of the narrative as instruction, instructive, and others were not instructive. And the ones that were instructive were, in, were included, and the ones that were not instructive were disincluded, not included. We have an entire half of a book, like 10% of the, of the Torah is talking about the Exodus. Details, right? Obviously, there's instruct, instructions. We have so much. Shmos, Yisro, Mishpatim, all these parashiot, these sections of the Torah, telling us the whole story. There's obviously a lesson for us. There's a lesson for us, and it's also important for us to know that Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they knew that God was in charge. How do we unknot or disentangle this, uh, this problem? So, um, to your answers. Let's go back to our first question. <coughs> Excuse me. Our first question was, why is it important, uh, I'm sorry, why is it a prerequisite for the Jewish nation to exist that, why is it a prerequisite that they have to be enslaved? God tells Abraham, you'll be my nation, your kids will be my nation, your progeny will be the Jewish people, <clears throat> but before that they'll be in Egypt for uh, uh, hundreds of years and they'll, uh, they'll, you know, they'll be tormented and then they'll leave. Why, why is that important? So I think the answer is like this. The entire process of whatever happened to the Jews up to when they were formed as a nation on the foot of Mount Sinai, up to that point was God educating the Jewish people. You know, any kind of uh, success uh, in any field, it could be in, in tennis, it could be in law, it could be in whatever. Uh, any, there's always a process of preparation of development, of reaching the point where the greatness could shine. Of course, we all know that. There's the education of the individual. There's also the education of a nation. The Jewish people are going to fill the most vital mission in all of human history, in all of world history. And that is bringing God to the world. That's our mission, a tiny nation, 0.02% of the population infinitesimally insignificant. We're nothing, we're a speck. We should be forgotten about before, like we shouldn't, we don't make a, you know, even a little title of tremble, a little smidgen on the demographic scale. We're nothing, yet we're everything, right? Why? Because that's what God had planned for us. And God set us up that we're going to be doing that. And we see now that we are. This nation, this nation should be the kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's people in the world, they have to be prepared for it. They have to be educated for it. They have to be molded and formed in order to be that nation. Part of that is being slaves. No, whoa, wait a minute. If we're gonna be like the, you know, the people of the world, are we gonna be a slave? You know, it's a good question. How does being a slave contribute to enabling us to be God's nation. You know, doesn't make any sense. You, you would think a slave is marginalized, a slave, you know, what about being a slave or being a nation of slaves? How is that gonna prepare us for being God's people? Okay, I like that. What was it, what was it? Makes you appreciate being free. I, I guess God wanted of Israel to know what it is to be enslaved before they are free people and spread the word of God that they needed to feel them to feel it on their okay, own. These are all good answers. What else? What What else? What? What's the number? Well, you said free. So, so what's what's the number characteristic of a slave is that they're not free, yes. right? They're limited. They're controlled. What they do, what they eat, 
what they sleep, when they sleep, if they sleep, what, anything that their day is planned out for them, right? They have no say in their, no say in the... Then when you're free, you feel like you can do everything. Uh, okay, well, let's, let, let's talk about the slave, right? Free their beliefs. You're trying to force this at being in a spiritual discussion. <laughs> Maybe, okay. But the number one characteristic of a slave, of a subjected or subjugated individual or a nation, is that they don't have control. They're not, they, they don't have a say in the matter. Now, if you were to look at the Torah, the Torah <laughs> is the instruction book for this great nation. What do you find more than anything else in the Torah? You find restrictions. Fire restrictions. More than anything else. More than anything else. And you say, wait a minute. Why, if we're going to let our wings spread, like why so many restrictions? You know, why so many limitations? So I, I think perhaps. Well, okay, but okay, but I, I think like this. I think that a, a man, humanity, individuals, a nation. They, in order to, for them to uh, capitalize on their great potential, they have to learn self-control. They, they have to be grounded. They have to be harnessed. They can't just be doing whatever they want and be being the subject of the whimsicals and temptations, whatever. Thus, the mitzvahs are constantly telling us, this you can't do, this you can't do. Is it so important to God if I eat milk and meat? Really? This is what God, creator of the cosmos, is worried about? That's, 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 that's a question that we could ask. However, clearly the idea of being limited, of being told, no, this you cannot do, that makes you a, a more mature person. It makes you a greater person. It makes you someone who has more control over your life. Thus, I, could, I, I think we could say that in order for us to, like you said, to, to really have control and to not be uh, 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 you know, drawn or, or, or pulled or compelled to just live life simply. We had to learn about the idea of us not being in control, of us being told what to do, of us being severely limited, being subjected, being subjugated, being uh, oppressed. Right? What does a slave think? I, I'm not in control of my destiny. I, I don't have a say in the matter. My master is in control of what I do. That, you know, that's what a slave is. Now, what happens at the Exodus? So that's the Jewish people. What happens at the Exodus? Is it just you open all the doors? What's the first thing that happens after the Exodus? Very first thing, they get the Torah. What God tells them is that I'm releasing you from this sort of bondage, and I'm putting you in a somewhat of a different bondage. Well, obviously it's not the same, well, they went but, wild and built the golden calf. We'll get to that in a second. Right. That's, that's a very good, that's, a, well, that, that's the ultimate conclusion of our discussion, that's maybe, that's if we get there. Probably not. Well, it's all in my head. Right? Once they had this mentality of, I'm not in control, I need guidance, I don't have a say, God takes that and says, okay, this attitude, but now it's not to the Egyptians, now it's to God. And now I, we kind of transfer the elite. We don't change who we are as a nation. We're still slaves. We're still subjected. We still don't have a say in our matter. We're still being guided. But that, that, that guidance, that relationship that we have with the master, that frees us to do whatever we want, whatever we need to do as a nation. God tells Abraham, your kids are going to be a, a nations and change the world. But the only way for you to do that is if you're not like everyone else. You're harnessed. You're grounded. You're, you're being guided by me. That's the only way to do it. How do, how do I take a nation of, of people that are, that, you know, that are not at all attuned or aware or capable of being guided? They're gonna be slaves. They're gonna be slaves in Egypt, and as a slave, you're forced to learn that. Once you learn that, okay, now Exodus. What happens at the Exodus? Now we're transferring that allegiance, that affinity, that, that association, that reliance that you had to the Egyptians. Now you, now you have to realize that that was just, you know, that was just for practice. Now here's the real deal. Okay, now, says God, if the people are going to transfer their allegiance from Pharaoh to me, what has to happen? They have to realize that Pharaoh is a fallacy. That sounds nice. Pharaoh was nothing. Pharaoh was completely weak. The Egyptians are, are just little, little, uh, what are they called? Little puppets that I'm playing with. Thus, the plagues, 
the, what were the plagues about? It was to teach Pharaoh. Because who sees that? Who sees Pharaoh brought to his knees? The Jewish people. Every one of the plagues, the Jewish people realized, whoa, suddenly Pharaoh is, is being humbled and is being brought to his knees and is being totally in control of the ultimate power. Thus, for the Jewish people to make this transition in affiliation, in association, in reliance from Pharaoh to God, they have to see two things. They have to see God's dominance and they also have to see how weak Pharaoh is and how beholden Pharaoh is uh, to, to, the, to, the, to the ultimate God. Thus, the ten plagues were not about getting the Jews out. God could have made, God could have made a, single, a single miracle, pluck the Jewish people out, uh, 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 apparate them, nice uh, Harry Potter term, apparate them all the way to Israel. Mazal tov, what's the problem? The problem is, is that in order for this to actually happen, the Egyptians, ha the Jews have to see the Egyptians totally brought to their knees. Pharaoh says, oh, I want to let them go. No, 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 no. I'm going to suspend your free will. This has to happen. Now, if you look at the ten, the, 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 the ten plates, okay, first three plates, the blood, the mouth turns to the blood, the frogs emerge from the ground, uh, fr from, the, from, the, from, the, uh, from the water, and the lice emerges from the ground. All three of them are, su are subterranean, are, are underneath the ground, like below. The next three are death of the animals, swarms of the beasts, and boils in the people. That's at surface level, ground level. The next three, hail from the sky, locusts from the sky, right, locusts fly, uh, you know, we think of locusts as, you know, that they swarm, they cover yeah. the, you know. And lastly, darkness from the sky, right. These, this is all part of education. The Jewish people learn, oh, God is in control of what's below, what's around us, and what's above us. You know. Additionally, every single one of the plagues coincided with one of the Egyptian gods. Thus, the Jewish people realized, oh, the, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile? God turns the Nile to water. Right? The, the Egyptians, they had a frog god that was a god of, uh, I think, uh, fertility or something like that. Uh, god uses that. Every one of the plagues was an additional demonstration to the Jews that the, what you think is the power of the Egyptian god, no, 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 they're really in the hands of the Almighty. They're really, they're really, they're really uh, in the hands uh, of the ultimate. Thus, we could say that this Exodus story, when you look back, you see, what do you see? Right? We see the descent into, into, uh, into exile or into enslavement. We see a nation being taught a very important principle. We see a tremendous uh, suspension of the laws of nature. We see a transcendental uh, plagues that are just directed at the, peop at the people. Right? You have a cup of water. The Egyptian neighbor drinks it, it's, a, it's blood. You drink it, it's water. The, the, the people are learning about God. Right? It's clear, it's, it's evident. The Jewish people could see, it's not dark for them. For the Egyptians, they can't see. It's like when you, when you look at the, um, you know, when they have like the, uh, God, you know, God forbid, when they have like uh, Joplin, Missouri, and there's a big tornado that comes. Remember those? So you see this, this one house that somehow survived. Like the entire, you know, the entire neighborhood is raised, raised with a Z. And there's one house that somehow just avoided the, you know, the, the tornado. That's what, what it was like. You see hail raining down in Egypt and the Jewish house is spared. And his neighbors are Egyptians, both sides, all four corners. And their houses are just in shambles. And you look a little further down, oh, there's a Jewish house. It's in perfect shape. Like, and you look around the whole, the whole country, it's like that. Every Jewish house is spared. Every Egyptian house is in shambles. Like, whoa, what, what, what do the people say? They say, oh my God, I, I, I'm, I'm being convinced. I, I'm learning about faith. I see the power is coalesced in the hands of this one power. And, and, and this power knows what's going on, know who, knows who is who, and is in control of even the Egyptian gods. Even the power, their powers are beholden to him. Because look, God's employing, the ultimate God, the Almighty, is employing the quote-unquote gods with the undercase G, for use of, of, of what he, of, of, of his desired outcomes. Thus, this entire process is preparing the Jewish people for being God's nation. Not only that, the Ramban, the great commentator on the Torah, he says that when, um, when we look back at, at our history, we look, about, we look back at the Exodus story. He says, this Exodus story was such a concentrated uh, mass of 
faith building tools that even today, 3,300 years ago, we look back and we remember the stories, we see the stories, we learn about the stories, we read about the stories, and we can nourish our spiritual life, back to what Josh was saying, our spiritual life can be, uh, can be enriched by, 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 by these stories. And he gives a great example. He says, you know, when, when, God, when God wants, he wants a nation, God wanted our nation, what did he do? He says, all the laws of nature are out, you know? Plagues, ten plagues, ultimately the, the ultimate plague of, of death of the firstborn, the exodus, splitting the sea, all these things are nothing for God. We, we, we think it's a big deal, you know? Mount Sinai experience, everyone has prophecy, like a total suspension of the rules. Forty years in the desert, how they eat. What they eat in the desert? You know what they ate? They went to the local pizza joint? What they eat? Manna. Yes. Manna fell down from heaven for an entire nation. They drank water out of a rock. Like this was the most supernatural transcendental time in history. And when we look back at this, this rush of, 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 of faith-building realities that happen to the people, today, we nourish our faith through that as well. How many people were wandering the desert? 603,500 adult males between the age of 20 and 60. So you did the math. 603,500 adult males between the age of 20 and 60. So, sorry, 603,500 adult males between the age of 20 and 60. 603. That's right. 603,000. Okay, that's... Um, 500. 500. Now, you would assume that there's a comparable amount of females because typically uh, men die earlier than women because men die in things called war and bungee jumping. Um, so typically you would assume there's uh, at least a comparable amount of women plus children and, and the elderly. I've seen estimates as much as 3 million people. I don't think it's 3 million people. Uh, I think it's probably less. I think it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of like 1.5 million or something like that. Uh, that. That's probably the number we're looking at. But it's an enormous, enormous mass of people. And remember, nice, cool little tidbit. The book itself, the Torah itself, enumerates all these miracles that were experienced by millions of people over generations. It wasn't like, oh, JC walked on water and no one saw it and it was written down 80 years later. No, here it says, miracles happened for millions of people over 40 years, every day they got food, besides for Shabbat, every day they got food from manna from the heaven, every single day for 40 years for millions of people and those very same people got the book written by Moses that said this is what happened. You know, so the people themselves, if it did not happen to them, if they didn't get, they would say uh, let's look at the new bestseller uh, the, the Bible, no, Bible uh, Oh, it says, oh, it says that I left Egypt about 40 years ago? What? Yeah. And we drank from water from a rock? And we drank manna from the heaven? And, and like, and all, the, and, and it's, you know, and it's all those detail in great, great detail. Names of the people, names of places that they, 44 places that they stayed, that they stopped along the way. And they got the book. And there's no way to falsify the story. It's not possible. If, if a future generation got the book, then the book itself is disproven. If that generation had the book and those events didn't happen, then they would reject the book. No one would observe the Shabbat. No one would um, not eat leavened bread on Passover. No one would fulfill all the laws of the Shabbat if they knew it was bogus. Clearly, the people that received the book believed it, believed it as being divine. Thus, the, mitzvah, the mitzvahs that may seem bizarre, like don't mix, wool and linen in your clothing doesn't make any sense to any human human brain they would follow that because they say hey it's from god and we know it's true because it's in the book and the book outlines exactly what happened we were there we were by mount sinai and we saw this one in the sea we we are those people and we got the book right now these stories today when we do that exercise we say oh wow God did suspend the laws of nature, and our grandparents saw it. Like, and we let that sink in, says the Ramban, that's gonna impact us. You know, my grandfather used to always say that this, this story, like the, these experiences, this inspiration that happened to the millions of people, it's, it's so hot that, you know, like if you, you know, we have to like take a thermos. He says, you take a thermos, and there's this thermos that holds that heat alive, and you open it up, and oh, you feel, you feel the same heat that existed then. 
The idea being that we could uh, uh, integrate this inspiration that happened uh, many thousands of years ago and that could uh, enrich our lives with spiritual nourishment and, and, and the faith. Now, getting to your question here. What happened merely 50 days after the Exodus? I'm sorry, 90 days, three months after the Exodus. Right? The amount of time that you to return an item with a receipt to the store. Like, what happened? He knows. Huh? I know, yeah, I know. Uh, 89 days. Bring it back. The they made the golden calf. And what did they say? They made a calf and said, this is your God, O Israel, that took you out of the land of Egypt. What? <laughs> you just had the most remarkable faith-building experiences ever. And in fact, us today, but if we have faith, it's because of those events and it's because of our contemplation of those events and how those events penetrated the Jewish psyche and consciousness for, for millennia. You were there. Those people themselves were there. And it was only three months earlier. How was it possible that this experiences did not make an impact on those people? And I'll, I'll expand your question that you asked. A couple months after that, they have the story of the spies. Right? Remember, the, not the spies, the spies. Right? Moses sends spies to, eat, to Israel. They come back and they start questioning God's ability to help the Jews conquer. Like, what? You just saw God splitting the sea. God, you know, the, the whole wonderful experience of Mount Sinai, uh, uh, the template. You saw things that should not make you question whether or not God could vanquish 31 kings of, of the land of Canaan. What happened? I'll explain your question even further. Pharaoh. Pharaoh, after the first and second plague, says to his sorcerers, oh, they can make blood? Huh, we could do the same thing. They pour, they pour a cup of water, and ah, it's blood. They have to do it. Oh, you got frogs? We got frogs too. And he's, ah, frogs. What happened, to th what happened to th after the third plague? Lice? No one knows? They couldn't do it. Why couldn't they do it? Because it was too small. If it's smaller than a barley, uh, the size of a barley, then the, the sorcerers have no power over it. So Moses is clearly not a sorcerer anymore. So what are the sor so so what is what 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 does Pharaoh's sorcerer say to him? Etzbalochimi, this is the finger of God. This is not some sort of fancy schmancy EBGB abracadabra magical nonsense. This is real. And his people say that. Does that impact Pharaoh? Absolutely not. Let's fast forward all the way to the plates. What Moses tells Pharaoh, by the way, at midnight or around midnight, all firstborn in Egypt are going to die. They're not going to be sick beforehand. They're not going to get flu. Nothing. At midnight, before midnight, they'll be alive. After midnight, they'll be dead. We're talking about thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. Right? He was forewarned that's going to happen. Not only that, the firstborn of the animals. Not, not dogs and pets that you have, but like yeah, cows. <laughs> Much more paddleable. Oh, okay, whatever. <laughs> Firstborn of every animal is going to die. Seven. Right? That's what Moses tells him. Now, Pharaoh, he's got some firstborns of his own. He's sure he has some firstborn animals of his own. So what happens? Moses tells him what's going to happen. What happened? It says that um, and, uh, in the middle of the night, all the animals die, and Pharaoh woke up. Pharaoh woke up. So Rashi tells us one word, mimitato. What is mimitato? From his bed. And why is it important for Rashi to tell us that he was sleeping, or that he was from his bed? Maybe he was on the couch, was he in the pool? Why is it important to tell us that Pharaoh was in his bed? He went to sleep. He went to sleep! He didn't care. He didn't believe it! What do you mean? Moses just came and did nine miracles, and he told you, by the way, all, all the firstborn, they're all going to die. What did Pharaoh do? Did it impact him? Was he scared? Oh, he went to sleep. Oh, it's a regular night. 8.30. I got a big busy day tomorrow. I'm going to... How do you go to sleep? How do you, how do you go to sleep when, when Moses tells you, and Moses has 100% accuracy, everything that he said happened exactly the way he said it. Right? You, you told Moses, I want the frauds gone tomorrow. They were gone tomorrow. Not today. Not the day after. Not, you know, tomorrow. Everything that he says comes out. Pharaoh doesn't make an impact. How is it possible that some Jews and Pharaoh were able to reject such clearly evident, such clearly obvious uh, miracles and, and question the legitimacy of, 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 of Moses? How is it possible that people are, are afforded the same opportunity uh, to have inspiration? 
You know, the same miracles, the same plagues, the same, everything, it's the same, right? On one hand, some people could use that and harness that and build a faith profile that is going to sustain the Jewish people for eternity, on one hand. On the other hand, you have some Jews, now it's important to note, we think of the Jews uh, serving the, the golden calf. We think it's everyone, right? That's what we think. Why is that? Why do we think that it's everyone? Because we watch the movie instead of reading the book, right? <laughs> the, the family of Arendin. Well, the family of Okay, who else didn't? How many people serve the golden calf? Dun, dun, dun. Anybody I knows? I know, Charles and Heston did. I know, you watch the movie, exactly. <laughs> It's, it's, it's actually, that movie is, is, is one of the uh, few examples of when the movie's actually longer than the book. The, the movie's longer that, than the book. But uh, the because movie the movie was, I think, more authentic than the new Exodus, right? They made it I didn't see the new Exodus, but from what I heard, the new Exodus is, is even worse. Uh, but the, the, there are a few, um, there are a few uh, flagrant mistakes made in, 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 in the Charlton Heston movie in 1956, Cecil B. the Mills, The Ten Commandments. Uh, number one was, uh, and this is probably the most flagrant, uh, is that... Moses was wearing a Rolex? <laughs> <laughs> no, was that Moses, and Moses alone, had the Mount Sinai. Moses was up, Moses goes up to the mountain, and the Jewish people start going to serve the golden calf. What actually happened, and you don't have to be a brilliant genius to figure this out. All you have to do is read the story of the uh, of the Mount Sinai, of the Sinai experience. Read it at number one in Exodus, and it's repeated again in Deuteronomy. And why is it repeated in Deuteronomy? Because it's very important, right? The Deuteronomy repeats a lot of things because Deuteronomy uh, is the the book of Deuteronomy happens over a very short period of time. It's basically the book of Deuteronomy is basically Moses's last will and testament. It's a couple of days before Moses is about to die, and he gives a very, very long speech that basically spans the entire uh, book of Deuteronomy. So in that speech, he recounts some of the events that happened in the past 40 years. Amongst those events are the events of Mount Sinai. So he repeats it, because obviously it's a very important event. Read the accounts and tell me who experienced it. The entire nation heard. The entire nation saw it. It says this again and again. Everyone experienced it. Everyone. It wasn't just Moses. Everyone. This was the only time in human history that people were elevated to prophecy on a national scale. This is the only time that it happened. The whole people of Israel behind they, they all see it. Yeah, what? Yeah, they see it. They hear it. It's a, it, it, it describes it in very graphic detail um, what they experienced because it was not something. It was not something like they, you know, the, the, the midrash. Once you open the midrash, it says that they all died of just they couldn't handle it. That they were resuscitated. They were blown away. Like and the midrash gives much more detail. What? What were the mechanics? of What happened? But if even if you just read the text, you don't have to. Don't even, don't even remember Rashi. Nothing. Read what happened. It's an experience unlike anything we've ever experienced. Prophecy, and the entire nation sees everything and sees things that a prophet should only only a prophet should see. And uh, and um, and uh, oh, so but in the in the movies presented, it just Moses goes up and he, and he just leaves people, and then he comes back down, and there and so that's that's the flagrant that's the most flagrant of uh, of misdeeds. Uh, in in the presentation of that movie, um, you know we we talk about uh, this is an idea that's uh, one that repeat repeat often. You know we talk about just if you were to compare the the um, the evidence that we have for the veracity of our religion, and you compare that with other religions. Veracity means the truthness or the historicity or the accuracy. Yeah, uh, of our religion, if you compare that to other religions, you know, every religion follows a very similar path. It is a prophet, or a prophet is a fancy word to say someone has, gets a communication from God, right? Some sort of revelation or experience, you know, it could be Joseph Smith in the mountains of New York, and he meets the angels, and the angel gives him the golden, ta golden tablets that are written in Reformed Egyptian. He translates that as the Book of Mormon, right? That's the narrative for the founding of the Mormon religion. It could be, uh, it could be um, Muhammad, 
uh, it could be uh, it could be Paul, it could be any any founder of any religion has this experience that he later on uses what to preach whatever doctrine that he's preaching, right? That's how every religion found it. Make sense, Dana? Yeah. Yes. That's right. Our religion, the Jewish religion, is the only one that has a narrative of public or national revelation. Why? Because it wasn't just Moses or Aaron or Phineas or any one of the individuals that experienced prophecy to form the, for the religion. It was everyone. The miracles of, in, the, in the Egypt happened to everyone. It wasn't just uh, Moses, you know, and he convinced everyone. Moses didn't have to be convincing, right? The people saw, and the Torah itself uh, um, um, talks about it. The Torah says, listen, what happened to the Jewish people on Mount Sinai will never be replicated again, nor will anyone ever claim that it happened to them. The Torah tells you, not only is this event so amazing that it'll never happen again, but not only that, no one will ever claim that it happened again. Oh, hanishma kadavar hazeh. It'll never, no, you won't even hear such a thing being said. Why not? Why, why, maybe someone will make up a, why, how does the Torah know that no one will make up a religion and claim to have national revelation? How does the Torah know that? The answer is because it's not possible. You can't make up a story uh, and have it have any legs to say that there were a million people that saw something that they didn't indeed see. That's it's not possible. You won't even hear it. If, if you and if us together, us 12 people, whatever we are here, right? If we decide to form a religion, someone's counting. Um, uh, if we decide to form a religion, I think it's 13. If we decide to form a religion, right? Let's, could we convince a million people or could we tell even a story that a million people experience something? It's not possible. There's no way to do it. Right. Thus, this it's, uh, this episode. I think if we just appreciate what it means, especially in contrast to the other great religions, right? It, it it gives us, like we said, it bolsters our faith. You know, we live from that experience. The second thing uh, was that um, uh, how many people participated in the golden calf? There's only three thousand people, so it's 05 percent of the nation. Uh, participated in that. So it means one out of every 200 people left Egypt participated in, uh, well, one out of every, two, one out of every 200 males, uh, the females that participated at all. <laughs> no, it's actually, it's, it's a pattern that we see again and again in Jewish history that heresy and, and, and rebellion uh, is almost always exclusively um, uh, by by the men, um, it's, yes, it's true. It's true. It's in, it's true. The uh, uh, the so profile. What's the answer? <laughs> to which question? Oh, oh, so the answer like this. So I, I, I think that the answer like this. I think that uh, the lesson is that no matter no matter how much inspiration someone has, someone could have. Uh, you know, I, I have a friend of mine who doesn't believe in anything. Doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in Mount Sinai. No, that's nonsense. You know, there's no, the no power, nothing. You know, everything gets the Big Bang and the survival of the fittest, and, and that's it. No, there's no one in control, it's all random, right? So, I say, so he says, but, but, if, if there's a prophet and who you watch with me to the Buffalo Bayou and he splits the bayou, then I'll believe. Then I'll believe. That's what he says. The bayou? Well, well, the, well the, the body of water that is in the bayou. Oh, okay. Uh, if someone does that, I'll believe. That's what he says. And the truth is, is that I'm willing to bet that even if someone did that, he wouldn't believe. Because no matter how much inspiration someone has, in order for it to penetrate your heart, and change who you are, and change even things that you don't want to be ch want to be changed. There's this chasm, right? There's this leap that has to happen. There is this integration process that is absolutely necessary in order for it uh, to be successful. Pharaoh saw everything that Moses saw, and everything the giant Jewish people. It didn't make an impact on him. The people that committed the sin of the golden calf, and later the ones with the spies, they had the experience, they had the inspiration. It didn't penetrate. Why? didn't it penetrate? That's the critical question. What, how is it possible that some people took this 
and it guided them throughout the rest of their lives, but also throughout the rest of the lives of all of, 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 of Judaism. Right? We today, right? we have so many mitzvahs. You know, if you go to a Shabbat meal, uh, you'll notice that in the Kiddush, in the blessing said before the meal, we say the word Zecher liyetziat Mitzrayim. You know that? What does that mean? As a remembrance for the Exodus of Egypt. That's right. Every Shabbat we remember the Exodus. If you celebrate Rosh Hashanah, we say in the Kiddush, Zecher Litziat Mitzrayim. Yom Kippur, Zecher Litziat Mitzrayim. Sukkot, Zecher Litziat Mitzrayim. Shmini Atzeret Simchat Torah, Pesach, Zecher Litziat All of them. Shavuot, Zecher Litziat Mitzrayim. Tefillin, right? If you were to open up a tefillin that are worn by Jewish uh, males uh, every day, you open it up and say, what does it really say? Zecher Litziat Mitzrayim. A mezuzah on every Jewish door, what does it say in there? Mitziat Mitzrayim. Right? We have a mitzvah to say the Shema prayer every morning and every evening. What's the last thing that we say in the Shema prayer? Zechel Mitziat Mitzrayim. Why do we have this obsession of constantly uh, invoking the Exodus? Why is it so central to our religion? It's everywhere, everywhere you go, every morning, every night. Uh, with the tefillin, every Shabbat, every holiday. Why is it so important? Every door you walk in, you see the Mitzvah Mitzvah. Why is it so important? The idea being because this uh, um, uh, barrage of faith-building uh, inspiration that happened is still feeding us today. Thus, when I pass a mezuzah, I can either pass a, uh, uh, a piece of scroll you know, surrounded by, you know, a piece of plastic that's stuck onto the door and not even notice it, or I could relive the experience at the Exodus. I had a great story. We had a, we had a, um, we did some construction in our house two weeks ago. So we had a construction guy, and this guy's very talented. Uh, so I said to him, listen, I, ha I have a problem because I have a, a, a playroom. I converted my garage to a playroom. Problem with it is that I have one of those swinging doors. It's a swing, like a door that opens both, like, I think it's called a saloon door. I don't, I don't know what it's called, a double door, whatever. So it doesn't, you know, opens both ways. So uh, on the side of the door, there's no place to put a mezuzah. Put a mezuzah and hit the mezuzah. Because the door is, is, you know, basically, so I had a problem. So I said to him, listen, I want you to do me a favor. I gave him, like, a, a mezuzah case. I say, I, I want you to cut a hole in the actual door, in the actual side of the door. What's called the, uh, frame. The, the frame of the door. Uh, and, and then we'll put it in and then you'll still be that's what I so, so he made the outline of it and fine and he says he's going to do it the next day the next day I come, I come there and I see um, that he actually did it but he actually took the mezuzah plastic that I had given to him and he drilled it in so now I have just a piece of plastic on my mezuzah. So I, I took it out I put the scroll in it I covered it I said the blessing and I put it up you know, but a mezuzah could be just a piece of plastic. You know, that's what he's like. Yeah, okay, I'll put it up for them. Whatever. It's kind of like it's kind of like um, uh, we had a baby here in uh, in 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 Sugarland. We had the hospital in Sugarland. So um, they said to us in the hospital, um, "Are you planning? Are you, you going to circumcise?" I say, "Of course." You know. And they're like, okay, well, we'll do it right now. I'm like, no, 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 I'm gonna do it like in eight days with the rest of Mohel, with, you know? It's like, <laughs> you know? Um, like there was, a, there was a picture on Facebook or something. It was a tallest on a tablecloth, like a tablecloth. Yeah. It's like, when the maid doesn't know what tallest is. Yeah, exactly. She's like, oh, but yeah. So like, so when we say mezuzah, it, it can mean, you know, it can mean that, um, it can, mean some, it can have some meaning to us. It can be reliving Exodus, or it can be nothing. Like I, I think we matzah. Everyone knows about matzah. Everyone knows Passover. Even the Jews most distant from Judaism knows about Passover. Why? Because in every supermarket in America, there's a Passover aisle. <laughs> no, it's every not single reason. one. Right? At least everyone knows about it. And then you look at these matzah, and you're like, someone does the math. Hey, matzah is very expensive. It's like so there was once this guy in Israel said, Hey, I, I did the math, and it's 35 cents a bite. It's that expensive, like the handmade matzah. I, I, I still think it's hilarious. Like he measured it by the bite. It was, I think it's probably the really big bites, but. So you're eating matzah on Passover. What are you doing? You could either be experiencing the Exodus. You're at the foot of the mountain, or you see the blood, the cup turned into blood, and you could be reliving it, or you can be eating crackers. You know, it's the same thing. It's the same matzah. 
For someone, they take the inspiration to heart, they think about it, they're mindful about what's going on, they integrate it to themselves, they relive a spiritual experience. The other people, it's just very surface, you know? I think even the great miracles that happened uh, at, 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 at Mount Sinai, the great miracles that happened, Mount Sinai, the, to Farah didn't make an impact, to, to some Jews, 3,000 of them, 0.5% of them, one of every 200 adult males, didn't make an impact. Why? They didn't integrate it. So I want to say, share one cute, awesome, <coughs> amazing idea. If you look at the very last sentence of last week's Parsha, um, so last week's Parsha, we finished the Parsha's bow, talked about the Exodus, right? So we have uh, the previous Parsha is in seven of the ten plagues, the last three plagues, we're out of Egypt, and the very last verse, it says, we're Tefillin. So I always say, hey, listen, you know, the editors of the Torah said, hey, listen, we have another, we have another slot here for one more verse. Uh, why don't we put in like another mitzvah? Okay, that's a good idea. And the editors agree. They take a hat, they flip it over, they put in 613 scraps of paper. Each one of them, it says the name of a mitzvah. Shake it really good. They close his eyes. Oh, oh let's pull out tefillin. Okay, let's, in, let's incorporate. Is that what it really is about? Is that what the selection process? Of course not. All right. The Torah clearly wants to teach us a lesson when it says, after the whole Exodus story, it gives us the mitzvah of tefillin. I think we could say like this. There's a, there's a simple and there's a deeper meaning. The simple idea is like this. In order for someone to actualize, to concretize, to integrate an idea, a spiritual idea into their actual life, make it have an impact on them, they have to do an action. They have to reinforce it by a mitzvah. Thus the Torah is telling you, wearing tefillin, and we said tefillin is very much linked to, to, the, to the Exodus, that's what it says, the Exodus is in the scrolls. When you do something mindfully, that bridges this vast chasm that separates the mind from the heart. But on a deeper level. Tefillin, if you look at a tefillin, you actually see two different kinds of tefillin. There's one that's worn on the head, that's four compartments. Each compartment has a different scroll. There's one that's on the arm, only one compartment and only one scroll. You say, well, well, is it one tefillin, is it two tefillins? Well, just wear tefillin, why do you have to wear two different ones? Tefillin symbolizes the idea of making a link between our head, our brains, what we know, what we understand, and our hearts, what we feel, what we do. That's what, that's what tefillin symbolizes. The Torah is telling you here, we just finished three or four sections um, on, on Exodus. There's value here. There's lessons here that can change your life. The very last sentence of the parsha is tefillin. But it will change your life contingent on whether or not you learn the lesson of tefillin. Contingent on whether or not you integrate this in, into your practice. You do something about it. You take an action. You reinforce the idea. You bridge this gap between the mind and, and, and the body. If you do that, then the whole thing was worth it. Otherwise, you read it, it's a nice story, you sit back, you say, huh? You know, you flip through, oh, what a lovely story. Maybe we'll just watch the movie, I don't know, maybe we'll read the book. You read through it and it could totally not, to you, you, you know, you're eating crackers and your, your mezuzah is just a piece of plastic. That, that's what it is, you know? Or, take the lesson of tefillin, you know? You get inspired, what are you gonna do about it? You know, you have, you guys have, uh, you know, the opportunity or the tremendous, um, merit to, to have a Torah class. And hopefully the Torah classes are, are, are good and inspiring. What about women that don't want to learn? Uh, what about them? What well, is there a connection between that? Okay, oh, that's a good question. Why don't women wear phone? That's no, that's a very good question. Now, so um, uh, there's a few different angles um, to that. Um, uh, first of all, women are, are not necessarily prohibited from wearing phones. It's a little bit different. Um, the reason why women, do, women don't wear tefillin is uh, because, uh, because in order to wear tefillin, the laws of tefillin mandate that uh, you have to have what's called a clean body. Without getting into the details. Well, we don't uh, have if, that. Well, we have to have what? I said a clean body. That's what, it's, that's what it says. Without getting into details, uh, women would not be able to wear it all the time. Mm -hmm. So that's why... Um, but the lesson of tefillin, they need as much as anyone. 
It's, you know, the, the mitzvah of tefillin, uh, uh, the insight of tefillin, uh, the uh, symbolism of tefillin, that's for that, that, you know, they have to learn that as well, of course. You know, uh, I think it's, it's probably somewhat uh, more important for men, as we know. You know, men are the ones who screwed up by the golden calf because because of they didn't integrate the lesson of tefillin. Women didn't. So we could probably argue that women don't need it as much um, as men do. So technically, technically, uh, technically, uh, uh, yeah. Even though there's a lot of discussion about it, it's a very uh, controversial matter. Technically, yes. Um, uh, it's it, the Talmud itself says that the rabbis were very, uh, very wary of women wearing tefillin. So uh, I will say technically, but even the, you know from the Talmudic perspective, from uh, thousands of years ago. Oh, because uh, of Eve. Yeah, she screwed up for everyone. Adam screwed up for us too, by the way. <laughs> Well, he, yeah, he did, but he was yeah. uh, kind of seduced by we're, Yeah, we're all suffering from those mistakes. Yeah. Um, so, so, that, so, that, so that's one idea. So we, we have, you, uh, I, was, I was saying, uh, we have opportunities for inspiration. We have it with the Torah classes. We have it through our lives, you know. I, I, I think I once did this exercise with this group. Um, I know I did it with a, with a talk group. We'll do it again. You know, you, you kind of... Um, Everyone knows that texting while driving is, is dangerous. Uh, Everyone yes. knows that. Uh, but when, last time I did this exercise, I asked, is there anyone here who was never tested while they drove and no one was able to raise their hand? <laughs> no one. So once again, you see a disconnect between what- I only what, started when I came to Houston. Well, okay. Yeah, you take it, that's right. But, so once again, we see a disconnect between what we know that texting is dangerous, you're in danger in life, and what we do. I, it's a clear example of, of this separation between what we know, what we understand, what makes sense, and what we do. Like, it's insane. Like, why would someone do something that, 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 that's harmful? It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, it, you know that it's wrong and we still do that. That's the point. We're, right, the, we're, but, but, but how do you do something that, that's, that's, that's right? We are, we are um, we're, we're insane, really. Like, we're doing things that we know are dangerous. Why would we do that? Because... Oh, rush to her cave, nice. Uh, because, because there is a di there is a disconnect between our minds and our and our uh, and our Heart. and our hearts. I, I you know, I once saw. I mentioned this also last time. I used to say I have these memories. Like I don't forget what I teach to which group. This is like years and years and years ago. No, not that many years. I've only been in Houston for three years. <laughs> but probably like two years ago, I I told you guys that I saw once on Facebook someone had sent a picture of like um really fancy sports car that was completely under like a, a, a truck and uh, yeah it was really bad and, and the caption was uh, they found his cell phone <coughs> still in his hand but they found his head in the back seat don't tell me that don't tell me that so I was thinking ooh everyone's cringing right that's the yeah let's I didn't post it on Facebook don't look at me <coughs> so if someone sees that post, what do they immediately say? I ain't texting while driving. Right? I'm not. I am not. Uh, ain't, uh, I am not, not texting. While, uh, I'm not going to in the future text while driving. Okay. Amen. Okay. Thank you. I aren't. Uh, I aren't. <laughs> I isn't. <laughs> Me isn't. You isn't. I aren't. Me was. <laughs> so, but what happens over time? That you forget exactly. So we have two problems. We have number one, the problem that we don't necessarily translate the uh, the inspiration into something that we can do, like a mitzvah. You know, we talk about mitzvah. We talk about that great thermos. Every time we do a mitzvah, we are supposed to have the meaning behind it. You eat the matzah, you're supposed to relive it. It's the mindfulness of the mitzvah that gives the inspiration. We have to repeat it again and again. You say why? Uh, uh, rabbi, well, we pray three times a day, and we work filling every day. How is it meaningful? The point is, is that it might not be meaningful every time, but we need constant reminders because just like the story of the guy reading this, reading that Facebook post, right, over time you're gonna forget it, and it's and you're not gonna remember it. So, to conclude, makes a lot of sense. Thank you. No, 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 no a lot of logic in the. So, to conclude, when we look back at these stories, um, we learn a lot. Uh, well, if we examine it a little bit deeper, we ask questions, 
Uh, why is it important for us to be subjugated to uh, enslavement? Why is that prerequisite? Well, we need to be formed. We're being formed as a nation. We're being taught the lessons of faith. Some people didn't learn it. Well, why didn't they learn it? They didn't integrate it into their hearts. They didn't take to heart the lesson of the tefillin, of making that, uh, of bridging that gap between our mind uh, and our... I thought of a different our... theory. Go ahead. You said that... Please proceed. <laughs> I'm sorry. You said that uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Yes. Intentionally. That's right. So I was thinking maybe there was supposed to be a small percentage that God intentionally made them not observe all they did in order to make them an example for what happens to them uh, if they don't apply. <laughs> now, um, uh, but, you know, if you actually examine the words harden their heart, what did we say? What, 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 what do we say? What, what's a tilt? It's a link between our mind and, and our heart, right? Pharaoh in his brains realized that God is in control, totally. God hardened his heart. He made that the brains couldn't enter the heart because it was hard. There's no room to penetrate, right? Is that what you're saying? Yes. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So yeah, I'm saying, but it means it's it's. No, but my theory was that maybe he did this on purpose also to a, a small percentage of the people of Israel in order to make them... Yeah, but remember, them. what's the motivation? It means our question was, what's God's motivation? We said, well, the motivation was because this has to be done to build the nation. Th there would be no motivation to have it done to the people of Israel. Just those people of Israel must have hardened their hearts on their own or refused to, you know, allow it to make that impact. Well... Either way, I think that maybe... the Oh, uh, well, that's right, but they, and they still don't learn the lesson. Uh, I think they, that the takeaway lesson for us is like this, you know, throughout the course of our lives, of course, in our, uh, you know, in our, in our lives, uh, in our Jewish lives and our Jewish lessons and learnings, there's going to be opportunities for growth, for inspiration, for becoming a better person, becoming a better friend, a better spouse, uh, you know, uh, 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 opportunities to, you know, expand who we are as individuals, right? We're going to have inspirations. We're, you're going to go to a class once and you're going to say, ah, oh, that's nice. You know, you're a class of relationships, you know. And you learn about how to be a better husband or a better friend, right? It's an opportunity. You to choose if you're going to be like Pharaoh and just your heart will be hard and it won't impact you. Or you're going to hit the lesson of Tefillin and you say, hey, I'm going to make sure that this is going to find some way to seep it into my bones. I'm going to make sure that I don't become a different person. I'm going to live my life in a different way as a result of this inspiration. And if we do that, I think, you know, we'll become better people, we'll become happier people. Um, you know, it's the guaranteed way to improve your life is become a better person. So, so Torah wants from us, and that's what we should hope for ourselves. Is it going to be easy? No, no one said it's going to be easy. Not. Just changing, no, change is never easy. Is it worth it? Of course I think it, it is. I think it is, yeah. Anyhow, thanks a lot, guys. Tons of fun as usual. Please, please, please invite me back. Oh, uh, of course. Uh, everyone. Thank you. Okay, I appreciate that, guys. A few announcements. Can I make a few?